It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Human Circus. Just a quick word before we start, as this will be my last episode pre-Christmas. Everyone has their own traditions around this time of year, whether those do involve Christmas or other wintry celebrations and festivities. Saturnalia, for example, the honorary history podcasting festival of choice. Whatever yours happen to be, I hope they involve some peace and rest, some uncluttered time to yourself, some time spent with your favorite people, your friends and or family, some comfort and coziness against the current blasts of cold now affecting many, some of whatever it is that makes the day special or just very pleasant and stress-free. The return of the Premier League, perhaps, and yet another week of Arsenal at the top of the table. Long may it continue. A soothing drink with friends, a deeply satisfying meal, a delightful sleep-in, or, if you're heavy with children, a rather earlier but also delightful morning. May it all come your way. Merry Christmas, Charlie Browns, and all others who celebrate. Happy holidays to all. All of which... I was going to say to you a few days ago. But of course, I never actually got to record on the 23rd, or the 24th. And now, as I record this, it's the 27th, a day on which I found myself a rapidly closing window to record before making dinner. And all of that has already happened. Christmas has come and gone, Arsenal already won, and so on. I thought I'd keep all of this in here, though, as I do wish you all the best for the winter season. I hope that it brought you happy times, and that it continues to do so. On into the new year. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that follows the travels of a wide variety of medieval characters and the history that surrounds them. We'll skip the Patreon business for today, except to say thank you very much to those who have supported the podcast and myself, this year or in other years, whether for a few months or month after month, even year after year, even as I stumble, am sick, or otherwise fall behind on things. Thank you all very much. I really do appreciate it. And now, back to the story. When last we spoke, Grettir's fortune 
crucial in this context to a person's lot in life, had turned for the worse. He had left advice unheeded and gone to fight the monster, Glaumer. And, as Sophie Pave has written, rather than returning to society as a hero who conquers the dark, Grettir was resigned to fear and inhabit it. His luck, often spoken of in the saga, seemed to have run out, to have turned bad. Others saw it clearly. They observed it, and as was the case with King Olaf of Norway, did not want such a cursed man anywhere near them. Grettir went to Norway in search of glory at the side of that king. He returned with the inadvertent burning of a hall full of men hanging over him, with the outlaw status that resulted, with the sad news first of his father's passing, and then of his brother's slaying at the hands of Torbjorn Oxenmite, a slaying which, in Grettir's absence, had gone unpunished, at least so far. That's where we pick the saga back up. We pick it up in the aftermath of Grettir's return home to the house that his mother still lived in. She had, remember, greeted him rather sadly on that occasion, not seeing a great deal of hope in his future, or, for that matter, in that of her family as a whole. Grettir stayed a while, not going out and making his presence known, for he didn't want to bring further trouble there, but gathering information. You can imagine him there in the home, showing himself only to the friendliest of faces, and hearing from them what they heard and saw as they moved about the region, learning from them that Torbjorn Oxenmite was to be found at home and unprotected, his men largely absent. It was not how you'd find me if I had gone and murdered one of Grettir's relatives. But then, the news of his return to the district was still not widely known. Torbjorn likely felt safe and secure in the inaccurate knowledge of Grettir's absence. When Grettir came for Torbjorn, as of course he did, as he was always going to do, it was in good weather that he rode to the home of his enemy at Torodstead. He knocked on the door, greeted the woman who answered, and asked after Torbjorn, wondering if he was at home, and if not, where one might find him. The woman, not recognizing this visitor, said freely that Torbjorn and his sixteen-year-old son were out in the meadows, binding hay. He thanked her, and off to the meadows he went. When Grettir approached, Torbjorn saw him coming, saw a stranger at first. Then, as he got closer, a large man, who could only be an avenging Grettir. He announced to his son that they must face their enemy bravely, that while he approached Grettir, Head on with sword and shield, his son should circle round to attack from behind with his hand axe, using two hands, he specified, and striking between the shoulder blades. 
and so they tried to do. But in the end, Grettir killed both of them, cracking the son's head open with the blunt of his sword, and splitting that of the father with its sharp edge. As Torbjorn had, after having killed his brother, Grettir went and announced the killings, making no effort to conceal his responsibility. Someone who had also been working that meadow ran to tell the people of Torbjorn's house that he and his son were dead. News that was greeted with shock. At Grettir's family home, it was better received. His mother glad at what he'd done, what he had shown himself to be in properly taking revenge for his brother, but noting that he would hardly be able to stay there any longer. What was it he intended to do? To journey west, he said, and to seek out help from friends and kinsmen there. And so he did. Grettir was in northwestern Iceland at this time, and when he started out southwest for the home of his relative Gamli, he was traveling roughly 30 kilometers by the modern roads, though of course he would not have walked them. There, at Gamli's home, he was told that he would be given as much legal support as could be managed, but that he must leave the region. A long and largely lonely spell of wandering exile had begun. He spent much of that autumn at the farm of a man named Torstein, but there was word that men were coming for him, and he had to move on. It was Torbjorn's brother, Torod Poemstump, who hunted him now, for he had taken responsibility for that duty in the aftermath of Torbjorn's death. He had been to see Grettir's mother already, and been sent off with her words that the killing had not been too much repayment for that of her son. And besides, Grettir wasn't with her. Torod had next discovered Grettir's location at Torstein's farm, but Gamli had heard and sent warning. And Grettir moved on, advised by Torstein on where to go next. He tried a man named Snorri first, but though Snorri said he would be happy to speak for Grettir in any legal settlement, he himself was an old man and did not feel like harboring outlaws if he was under no obligation to do so. Grettir went then to a farmer named Torgils as a second option, and stayed there through the winter with a pair of other outlaws, their presence perhaps an indication of Torgils' remote location. The winter passed, not in peace, but without anyone dying, something that would not go unnoticed, credited to Torgils' character and luck, that he had hosted such uncontrollable men, without much violent incident. Of his guest, Grettir, Torgils remarked upon his great fear of the dark, Glaumer's curse still going strong, and how it would not allow him to go anywhere after nightfall if he could help it. With the end of that winter season came the Althing, the gathering of powerful men from across the island with their followings, 
their causes and concerns, their agendas and grievances. Of course, the case of Grettir came up. The killing of his brother, Atli. The killing of Torbjorn Oxenmite and his son. There was actually discussion of acquitting Grettir, of relieving him of his outlaw status, for there were highly respected men who felt he would be more dangerous, more source of trouble and harm as an outlaw than not. And besides, his relatives were hardly likely to provide compensation for Torbjorn's death, unless the payment was to bring Grettir some relief. But would Grettir be granted that relief? As you might have guessed, he would not. The sticking point, really, was not the slaying of Torbjorn Oxenmite at all. That was a matter of negotiation. What with one farmer's death, potentially eye for an eye equal to another's. What proved not to be negotiable, and saw the all-thing conclude with Grettir very much still an outlaw, was that hall-burning from last episode. Torier, father to those two sons dead in that hall, would not hear of forgiveness, legal or otherwise. His rage against their inadvertent killer was unabated, and he would not accept Grettir's return to society. He and Torod both placed prices on Grettir's head, each an incredibly high price on its own. And though one of Iceland's leading experts in law, a man named Skapti, again argued that it, quote, was unwise to push so hard to keep the man an outlaw, when he could cause so much damage. And he added that many would pay for this. But Torier would not be moved. The one side offered the position that punishment, in the strictest sense, did not necessarily serve society best. But on the other was the anger of one who had lost two of his sons. And it was besides... No average man who pursued this claim of retribution, but rather one of significant power and influence. Grettir's status stayed just as it was, and Skapti's concerns were allowed to come true. Grettir traveled north, toward the western fjords, taking what he must, weapons from some small farmers, Clothes from others, sometimes food, none of it given willingly, many of the owners treated roughly. A person like Grettir, cast out from society, had to take what they needed, if they were able. And indeed, he was able. Of that, there had long been little doubt. At times, Grettir was careless overly secure in his safety, even as his condition became ever more fundamentally unsafe. He dozed off and was tied up by thirty herdsmen, who fell to arguing over what to do with him, somewhat in the style of three trolls squabbling over the fate of the dwarves, before the intervention of a passing woman saved him from the rope. 
What drove you to this, Gretir? she asked, when he'd identified himself. What brought you to this moment, that you trouble my men? For the land and men were those of her and her husband. Some things just happen, Gretir replied, and I have to be somewhere. Yours will be a great but difficult life, said the woman's husband when he met Gretir. But I have no wish to harbor you here, and in return receive the anger of many powerful men. Few will be prepared to take you in, if they can avoid it. Such speeches addressed to Gretir put me in mind of Watership Down, of that of Lord Frith to the father of all rabbits. All the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies. And whenever they catch you, they will kill you. But first, they must catch you. Being tied up by herdsmen aside, catching Gretir was not so much the problem. For he was not really the digger, listener, and runner type of watership down. Never particularly rabbit-like. His survival skills lay elsewhere. Winter passed in the home of a kinsman, a skilled smith who soon tired of Gretir's disinclination to do any work, and besides, heard that his guest's enemies had learned of his whereabouts and were again gathering. Spring and summer passed on a mountain from which Gretir robbed passing travelers, each one contributing from their belongings, with no choice to refuse. Everyone, except for one man, who alone had the strength to keep what was his, to yank his own reins back out of Grettir's grasp, and ride confidently on, telling Grettir in riddle and verse where he lived, and filling him with wonder at the power he'd felt in the stranger's grip. It was understandable that a man in Grettir's position might be forced to resort to such brigandry, that he had not a great deal of choice in just how he lived. But not everyone saw it that way. Skapti, that sympathetic expert in law, told him that his behavior was unworthy of a man of his lineage, and, more immediately, unhelpful for a person of his legal standing. Moreover, Skapti himself could hardly entertain such a man as his guest. He advised him to find some place where he could live on his own resources, to find his way independent of theft and violence. But Grettir, though he saw the wisdom in this, complained that he could hardly manage to live alone with his terror of darkness. He could scarcely tolerate it, but he would need to try, for as Skapti replied, he could hardly hope now to have it all as he wanted. Grettir did make an effort to change his way of living. He took himself even more aside from society, finding a good situation next to a lake. He arranged for nets and a boat to fish for his food so that he wouldn't need to waylay travelers. And he suffered. He was miserable in his wilderness retreat, 
possessed of a loneliness driven by fear. And this fear of being alone, it made him vulnerable. After this short break, we'll see just how vulnerable. Though Grettir had sought and found a place where he could make his way away from others, others found him. Other outlaws heard of Grettir's hideout, and they came, most hoping for his protection, but some for other reasons. A man named Grimm came, claiming a desire for company and protection, but secretly planning to kill Grettir for money, along with the promise of freedom and forgiveness from his own outlaw status. Late into that autumn, he stayed with Grettir, but when he thought he had his opportunity, Grettir was ready for it and killed him. Grettir, the saga once more emphasizes, was distressed by nothing more than the dark, and winter passed with him alone and afraid. Ever distrusting, always needing, he learned from Grimm's assassination attempt, but that didn't really change anything in the choices he made. He knew that the food was bad for him, but still he ate, feeling he had no other choice. Being alone was simply that much worse than worrying about whether a stranger would attempt to kill him. Truly an unpleasant way to live. So it was that when another outlaw came along after the winter, this one named Torier Redbeard, Grettir allowed him to stay. He didn't really trust him, and indeed he was correct in his distrust, for Redbeard had been sent by Torier of Guard, father of the two brothers who had died in the hall burning. Redbeard was himself a noted killer of strength to rival Grettir's, and he had also been promised rich rewards and an end to his punishment in exchange for Grettir's head. Grettir suspected him, but again, so desperate was his condition that he had to give him the benefit of the doubt, to trust him for now, or at least to allow him to stay, even if he could not fully let his guard down around him. Through a full two winters, Redbeard lived with Grettir and waited for a chance to kill him. It seems a very serious commitment to an unpleasant and difficult task. And the way the saga reads, it seems he eventually just despaired of receiving a better opportunity and tried to manufacture one to force the issue. It was a stormy night in spring when Grettir woke and asked whether their boat was secure, and Redbeard leapt up to go check. He went outside and smashed the boat, scattering the pieces about as if this violence had been done by the wind, and sending the nets out into the water, before going inside to inform Grettir that the storm had badly mistreated them. Grumbling, 
Grettir came outside to see for himself. There was talk over who should swim out for the nets, with Grettir insisting that Redbeard should do it, while Redbeard protested that swimming was the one physical exertion that he could not manage. Eventually, Grettir set aside his clothes and weapons, and prepared to dive into the dark and surely very cold waters, telling Redbeard all the while not to betray his trust in him. Stop accusing me of treachery and cowardice, said Redbeard, for it had been more than two winters. You alone will prove who you are, replied Grettir, and so it soon proved to be true. When Grettir had gathered the nets and was climbing back up the banks of the water, Redbeard rushed upon him with a raised sword. But just as he swung, Grettir hurled himself backward into the water and dove under. Redbeard waited, watching the surface and preparing to strike. But Grettir stayed under and swum along the bank and around the point, coming ashore behind Redbeard and approaching him quietly, so that there was no warning until Redbeard was suddenly hoisted bodily into the air and sent crashing to the ground, his head then quickly cut off with his own sword. After this, the saga's passage concluded, Grettir never had anything more to do with outlaws. Still, he could not tolerate being alone. When Torier of Guard heard word that Redbeard had failed, time had not appeased his anger. Not two years of it. The setback only encouraged him to take a new tack. Hiring a single assassin seemed not to be the answer. So maybe just going up there himself with a small army would work. He would certainly try. Torier went with eighty men, and Grettir was warned of his approach. Harder to conceal than the movement of a solitary outlaw. But Grettir did not flee before his coming. He looked out for it, and when he saw a large group of men riding his way, though not yet realizing quite how large a group that was, he left his hut and climbed up to a narrow place at the peak, where very few could assault him at once. Torier, seeing him trapped there, gloated at a job all but done and commanded his followers to go and take his head. But Grettir, in one of the better understated lines of the saga, replied that, quote, Arriving at the well is one thing, drinking is another. You have long sought this moment, and some of you will acquire marks of the game before we part. The attack began, and from his place in the narrows, Grettir took on all who rushed at him, striking some back, others down, none of those who were able to fit in through the opening, able to do much to trouble him. But as the fighting went on, what Grettir found strange was that none ever attempted to trouble him from behind, to sneak around and attack his unprotected back. 
Torier, knowing full well that he had, in fact, sent man round the back, was also struck by this, though he reacted differently. I had heard it said that Grettir was a champion because of his strength and courage, he said. Still, I had not understood that he was as filled with sorcery as I now see, because behind him twice as many are killed as from the group that he faces. Now I realize that we are dealing with a troll, but not with a man. For Torier, that was enough. He called his people to withdraw, and he departed in what would be counted by many a shameful defeat that ended with eighteen of his own men dead, and many more than that wounded. Meanwhile, Grettir had turned to investigate exactly what had gone on behind him, and climbing that way, he had discovered an enormous man seated against the cliff wall and covered in wounds from Torier's men, who he had fought off. Who was he? Grettir asked. He was named Hulmund, and I can give you this clue to aid in remembering me, he told Grettir. You found that I held the reins tightly when we met during the summer. It was the man Grettir had encountered a few years before, the only one who'd been strong enough to be able to say no to him back in his time of brigandry, the one who had given him quite a different name on that occasion, and who now, inexplicably, was here, at Grettir's back, warding off his assailants, and then inviting him to come stay in his home. A quote, large cave, with a large, impressive daughter. For as Hulmund put it, you must find it lonely here. Grettir happily agreed, never longing not to be alone, especially at night, and now at last finding someone he could surely trust. In the home of this mysterious benefactor, Grettir stayed a long time that summer, healing and resting, composing verses dedicated to his new friend. Swords with an adder's bite, gliding on wounding paths, through flesh and bone, as fighting raged at Rutofjord. Now those thugs are hosting wakes, for the dead killed there. Hulmund climbed from his cave to aid me in my escapes. As I'm sure many others have before me, I do wonder about Hulmund. Going under different names, living as he'd told Grettir when they'd previously met, beyond the dwellings of human folk, in a cave as it happened, out there in the wild, and with an unusually large daughter. Was he, or were they, actually human? or entirely so. In the saga, it's not totally clear. But whatever else he was, Hulmund was a good friend to Grettir. There seems, and perhaps I'm reading too much into the material, but there seems to have been a note of real warmth and affection here that you would not necessarily expect from someone you first met in attempting a robbery on a mountain path. 
and that's admittedly a low bar, but there is something special to the friendship. Grettir seems to have been happy there with the two of them, but he did not stay. He expressed a wish to return to the inhabited districts and to see his kinfolk once more, for it had been a while, and in the autumn of that year, he left that friendly cave. Three winters he spent abroad in the west of Iceland, burning bridges and generally outstaying his welcome. There was a long period in which he camped out in a lava cave overlooking a path commonly used by travelers, and again took to robbing them until various groups mustered against him. In one encounter, he maimed and injured several men, slicing one through the waist, nearly in half, killing another named Steinulf. To the woman of a nearby farm who saw him pass by after the fight and asked for news, he answered in verse, rather dryly, I tell you, attentive lady, those grievous wounds to the head that Steinulf took won't heal in a hurry. The head in question had apparently been split straight down to the shoulders. In another incident, an overconfident opponent came against him with all their followers. But when those followers had begun to fall, and he had personally exchanged a few blows with Grettir, he turned and ran. Grettir, offering pursuit, but not really chasing him over the mountain, through the valley, and on past other landmarks, just going fast enough to keep close, to press the fleeing man, giving him just enough room to throw aside some item or other that might be slowing him down, his weapons first, then his clothes and other belongings. When he was down to the underclothes, Grettir finally closed in. He beat the man with a birch branch before releasing him and going back to his lava cave, picking up what the man had dropped along the way. Grettir could not stay in that cave forever. He'd killed or robbed too many local men, an increasing number of them, friends and kinfolk, to the man who'd suggested the place to him in the first place, his host there. He had to leave, and after about three years, he did so. There was time spent in the valley of a half-troll and shepherd named Torier. Time, apparently very enjoyable time, spent with the half-troll's daughters. There were travels in the east fjords, but none of the leading men there would have anything to do with him. None would give him shelter or food. None would offer him the kindness that Holmund had. As for Holmund, while Grettir had traveled and robbed and generally misadventured about, Holmund had noticed that another outlaw had taken up residence in the home where Grettir had once stayed and fished. Grim, for that was the outlaw's name, had killed someone and been cast out because of it, 
and he now found Grettir's old shelter, as good a place as any to stay. Situated, as it was, next to a lake, abundant with fish. But Holmund didn't like this. Didn't like that this newcomer was taking advantage of what had once belonged to his friend. He decided that no one else ought to benefit from that place. From Grimm's perspective, the fish began disappearing one day. Not from the lake, but from the racks where he hung them after he'd brought them ashore. Fully 100 fish simply gone the following morning, and the next time he fished, 200. The third time, he resolved, would be different. He caught 300 fish that day, and he prepared and hung them outside his new home, as he usually would. But this time, he waited in secret to see who or what would come. He waited into the night, until he heard heavy steps approaching. He watched as a large man, carrying a large basket, appeared, and walking up to the racks, stuffed all the fish into the basket, enough that it would have taken a horse to carry any more. Then, as this stranger rose with his burden, Grimm rushed out, axe in hand, and buried it two-handed in Holman's neck. Holmund staggered to his feet, basket still slung across his back, and set off at a run. Grimm, filled with curiosity, following him all the way to his cave and his daughter, described again here as large but good-looking. Then, as Grimm watched unnoticed, Holmund greeted his daughter, and when questioned about the blood, answered in verse. No man can trust in his own unaided strength. That's clear to me, because the courage of heroes ebbs away on the death day as their luck runs out. And he told her just how his luck had run out. This was not the kind of man to let things pass, she said. Nor is it surprising, considering how you treated him. But who will now avenge you? It is not certain that vengeance will be taken, answered Holmund. I believe Grettir would seek to avenge me, if you were able to come. Still, it will not be easy to go against this man's good luck, because his future is bright. At the end, Holmund told of his many exploits in verse, going on for some time, because his life had been full of travel and adventure. Trolls and their kindred who dwell in the crags I have dealt with harshly, he said. I have taken on many evil creatures, half-breeds and half-trolls met death through me. Likewise, I've shown hatred to almost all children of elves and evil spirits. There was more, much more, some of it concerning his time with Grettir, that showed pride affection, and competition. My strength was esteemed when with force enough I buffeted Grettir away from my reins. With a glance I saw how he stood gazing a good long while down at his palms. 
Next was the time that Torier ventured onto the heath, and just the two of us enjoyed a game of spear points against their eighty. Grettir's hands showed the form of a master, with glancing blows against their shields. I heard, though, that her opponents rated the marks left by me more severe by far. As for those fellows who sneaked from behind, I sent their hands and their heads flying, with the end result that eighteen bodies littered the heath. And when he had finished his poem, he died, and his daughter broke down into tears. Grimm stepped forward then, presenting himself to her and urging her to take heart, though not as one would now. Everyone must die when his time is up, he said, and this end was largely caused by his own actions. I could scarcely sit by and watch him rob me. And to this she agreed. Grimm stayed there in the cave many nights, and by the time he left, he had learned Hallman's poem. The narrator tells us that he later became a trader, and many stories are told about him. And that was nice for Grimm, but not so much for Grettir, for he had lost another who was close to him, and there were not all that many of those. Perhaps his misfortune was in part borrowed from that of Grettir, that cursed aspect to our protagonist, which many had recognized and steered well clear of. Next time, we'll follow that unfortunate aspect towards its conclusion. Thank you for listening, and for your support. I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nyx.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.